Not too long ago, a group of Swedish researchers surprised the community when, after several years of research, they published their conclusion that basically said sin was irresistible. In fact, it was genetically influenced. They had isolated a gene which they believed influenced a man to cheat on his wife. It was soon nicknamed the sin gene. You probably read about it or heard about it. It's been in a number of journals and, and articles. It, it, it serves as supposed proof that people are helplessly wired. And one of the uh, Swedish researchers said it this way, these findings shed light on the fact that all of our behaviors are influenced by nature. What he, what he means is that any idea of sinful behavior should be discarded now in favor of simply understanding the evolutionary process. In other words, sin is not our fault. We can blame it on, on genetic wiring. We can't help it. It's in our genetic structure, which is really convenient, isn't it? It fits right in there with the, the idea of victimization where you're, you're never at fault for anything you do. It's somebody else's fault. And it's very convenient. Now, now you can really blame your parents. You have scientific proof of, of that. The reason I'm a mess is because of them or somebody or something else. I can point my finger to somebody, someone, something. I'm not the problem. The reason you sin is because the neighborhood where you grew up led you that way. Other people you grew up with made it irresistible. Maybe it's your boss that causes you to sin or your spouse or children. Maybe it's the fact that you don't have any money that led you to sin or that you had too much money that led you to sin. Or maybe it's your busy activities of life led you to sin or maybe it's you're bored without anything to do and that whatever it it fits perfectly we can use it to suit ourselves how many times have you heard somebody stand before a judge maybe on television in some news clip and and you've heard them say something like yeah i know you found me guilty but that isn't really me that wasn't me Uh, somebody else then is at fault Uh, i happened to do something that somebody else would have done certainly not me Illustrated perfectly by graffiti on a wall downtown Philadelphia that read, Humpty Dumpty was pushed. (laughs) Never mind that he shouldn't have been sitting up there to begin with. The poet of that rhyme intended to illustrate the broken mess of humanity personified by an egg, the origin of life. It's now a mess, but now we know it's someone else's fault. He was pushed. And if there's nobody else around that you can blame, that you can see, well, then you can do what that comedian, Flip Wilson, made famous years ago. If you're old enough, you remember. What did he say? Got some old people in here, right? The, <laughs> the devil made me do it. If I can't see anybody to blame, I can't spot any reason, well, then it's, it's the devil. Then to this day, we have the problem. You know what? In a real way, we do trace the problem back to our parents. They don't make us sin, but when we sin, we act just like them, don't we? We're just like Adam and Eve. Someone else is to blame. I love the way Will Rogers, the homespun philosopher of the last century, put it when he remarked, there are only two periods in American history, the passing of the buffalo and the passing of the buck. Isn't that perfect? That is classic thinking and it frankly isn't just American, it is human nature. And it does go all the way back. We, we mirror. Not because someone made us, but when we sin, we're just like our parents, aren't we? Adam and Eve. Both of them ate the forbidden fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God came along and demanded an audience. And, and Adam said, don't blame me. And Eve said, don't blame me. I'm not the problem. And to this day, we, just like them, sinners all, find one of the hardest things to say are things like, I was wrong. I am guilty. I did that, and I did it all by myself. And when I did that, that really was me. I'm the one who was wrong. 
How long has it been since you've heard anybody talk like that? You see that characteristic of self-justification. We're, we're amazing prosecutors of other people, but we're wonderful defenders of our own actions. You see that every time you get in the car in the morning, drive to work. You're driving down the right-hand lane. You've got to get over two lanes to turn left. You didn't anticipate it quick enough, and so you floor it. You swerve over in front of that guy, and you think, what a good driver I am. Right? <laughs> the guy behind is having a conniption. But let him do that to you, and I can't believe the way people drive around here. I was at an intersection the other day at a light. I was the second car in line. A woman was in the car in front of me. The light turned green, which to me means it's time to proceed. And then she was looking down, I don't know, texting or whatever, and she didn't, didn't. So I just, you know, gave a little polite honk. Just a little a Christian one, you know. Just beep. And you know what she did? She got mad. She looked up in a rearview mirror and, and she honked back. <laughs> she honked at me. So the light, you know, finally she, she went ahead. I turned right, went to turn right. I honked back at her. And it wasn't one of those little honk if you love Jesus, you know. This had nothing to do with Jesus, okay? I believe how some people are. And then I got to come home and study James. It talks about maturity. And now I'm hoping she doesn't know who I am. <laughs> James wants to see us grow up and demonstrate our faith in life, even at intersections, right? So far we've discovered that, that maturity is revealed in a passion to persevere when facing tribulation. You don't get to choose your crosses you do get to choose your responses, and spiritual maturity stays put. Now, James will go on in this next section, and he'll talk about maturity as, as a passion for staying pure when facing temptation. In the past 11 verses, James has delivered to us the truth about trouble. Now, in these next six verses, he's going to deliver to us the truth about temptation. And I want to tell you ahead of time, and some of you are older believers and, and you know exactly where we're headed in this text, but some of you may be younger to the faith, but I think all of us need the reminder that James is going to talk about that little three-letter word, sin. And he's going to make very sure we understand that the problem is the middle letter. I am the problem. James 1, let's pick it up at verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished... It brings forth death. Now, you might notice that James begins this discussion like he did the previous paragraph. He, he doesn't say, if you face temptation. He says, when. He assumes that you already know you will. You're going to face temptation every single day. It's not an if. It's a when. When you face Temptation, when you are tempted, here's what I want you to do. And so he begins very realistically by telling us what we know to be true now. I assume we know it, that we are tempted every single day of our lives. It hounds us. It, 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 it nips at our heels. It's at every turn and every, on every corner. You get out of bed, you ought to know you're going to be tempted. You're going to be confronted by a thousand advertisements in a day. When you drive to work, you're going to see the billboards. It might be television, newspaper, magazine, radio, internet, Facebook, family, friends, coworkers, neighbors. 
you name it. And somewhere along the line, and, and they won't be the problem, we will, but, but they're going to bait us. They're going to they're try to convince us to buy into something we shouldn't buy into. To think something we shouldn't think. To see something we shouldn't see. To, to say something we shouldn't say. To do something we shouldn't do. Every day you get out of bed, you're going to be given a test of integrity that will try to chip away at your character and your holy passion for purity and or your humility or whatever. You line it up and you have every intention when you get out of bed to shore those things up, to reinforce them. And all the while, temptation's like a chisel, just chiseling away. Or you want to reinforce it. You're going to face it. And it starts... Young, just like your children, the way they become an illustration, especially when they're little, they're going to get up in the morning and, and almost immediately test you in some way. You see, they want to know if the boundaries moved sometime during the night. Did things change while we were sleeping? Did mommies know yesterday turn into yes today and they're going to go rattle on the gates and they're going to check the windows they're going to check the door so also temptation is going to come back again and again in your life and mine to see if the gates are still closed if the windows are still locked, if the front door will still remain closed to its advances, it wants to find out if somehow during the night things changed and that no turned into maybe. And, and maybe I'll think about it. And then maybe, well, why not? Yes. See, temptation will never leave you alone. So James does not say, now if you happen to be tempted, and we know really good Christians aren't. No, James says you're going to be tempted. And here's how you'd better think if you want to pass the test. The first thing he says to do, by way of outline, is simply put, stop playing the blame game. Notice again verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Now James is writing to Christians. So doesn't that strike you as odd? I mean, certainly no Christian would ever blame God for life being tempting. Well, maybe not openly. But how many Christians would be tempted to say, well, you know, if God had given me a better job, I wouldn't be so greedy. If God had intervened for me earlier, I wouldn't be so angry. If God had just changed something about my past, my heredity, my environment, my education, my income, my geography, uh, my alma mater, whatever, I'd be a better person. See, we've become no more biblical in our thinking than those Swedish researchers who believe that sin is the fault of someone other than our own. In fact, we would come to the conclusion that ultimately the problem is God. So he strikes right to the core of it. He gets past all of the other loopholes and he says, really what you're saying is that God's at fault. The truth is we as human beings are all predisposed to sin, aren't we? In fact, there is no sin beyond our capacity because we are all fallen sinners but you cannot say, this is the way God made me. In other words, God is to be blamed. That's exactly what Adam did, by the way. If we go back to that audience, which God demanded, Adam said, well, the woman you gave me. You don't miss that part. See, what's he saying? He's saying life was really fine until you brought her along. I wasn't tempted. I didn't have a problem. I had a garden. I had friends, animals. I'd named them all, and we were getting along just fine. And then you brought her into my life. Now, she's standing there listening to this. He's going to have to live this down for 900 years. 
And God doesn't respond. He just looks at Eve and Eve said, well, it's the serpent. Implication, you created him. See, they are standing there together in united accusation that God is ultimately the problem. And mankind has been doing it ever since. See, James says what he says here because he knows that the nature of mankind, even believers, will ultimately view God as the chief object of blessing or the chief object of blame. What are you doing today? In your heart. Are you blessing him? Or are you blaming him? James goes on to say in verse 13, For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. In other words, God has nothing to do with tempting someone to sin. Why would we pray, you know, don't lead us into temptation? I think that's just an honest admission that we have trouble with temptation. Lord, if you can Lead me around it. He's not saying effectively that God would somehow tempt us or solicit us to do evil. We just understand our weakness and pray that we'll avoid as much temptation as we possibly can. But he says here, God cannot be tempted by evil. And immediately you have a question or two about that, don't you? I thought Christ was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews says that in chapter 4, verse 15. He, he was. But I thought Jesus was God incarnate. Well, he is. But it says here that God cannot be tempted. It does. But if Jesus is God and Jesus was tempted, here it says God can't be tempted, then we've got a problem, don't we? That raises some big questions. It does. Now, let me give you a quick answer. The words cannot be tempted by evil translate effectively one word which is used only here in the New Testament. It's a rare word. It carries the, the idea of being beyond the capacity to do evil. In other words, when he is tempted, there isn't anything in his divine nature to correspond to it. See, that's our problem. When we're tempted, there's something in our nature that resonates with it. There's nothing in the nature of God that resonates with evil. So he is, as it were, invincible. You could render it invincible to, to temptation. One author put it this way. He said that God is aware of evil, but untouched by it, like a sunbeam shining on a trash dump, is unaffected by its stench. He is unaffected in his divine nature. Well, the other question you might have then is, well, if Christ was unable to sin, not just that he wouldn't sin or that he didn't sin, but that he couldn't sin, which I believe theologians call that the impeccability of Christ, that he couldn't sin. Well, if that's true then, how, how is Jesus able to sympathize as our high priest when we go through temptation because he was tempted like we were, then that doesn't make much sense. Was he really tempted like we were? Yes, he was. In order to understand that, you have to understand that Jesus Christ was both fully God and fully man. He had two natures. He had a divine nature and a human nature. Not a sinful fallen nature, but a human nature. So that means he was truly God... And he was God incarnate. He was truly a human being. He was not faking either one. Well, the question would be then, how did he meet temptation? How did he encounter temptation? He met it as a man. One theologian by the name of Wayne Gruden writes it this way. The divine nature of Jesus Christ could not be tempted. That is, it had nothing within it to be attracted to sin. But his human nature could be tempted and was clearly tempted. The classic example in scripture is Luke chapter 4. Where Jesus is tempted by the devil for 40 days. For 40 days he went without food. And Satan effectively comes along to him and in his temptation says this, and I'll paraphrase and expand it. Here's what Satan's getting at. Listen, uh, Jesus, I know you've emptied yourself of divine prerogative to live like God and to make life as a man easy. 
Well, why not satisfy your hunger, though? It's a legitimate need, a God-created need. Why don't you, why don't you take care of that problem by, by resting on your deity? In fact, why don't you just have a, a moment of self-serving? You just have to snap your finger, and that need is taken care of. And Jesus quoted scripture effectively saying, look, life isn't about meeting needs, even legitimate ones. It's about obeying the word of God. See, he met temptation like we do. He didn't rest on his deity. He resisted in his humanity. And he resisted by means of the word of God. And so three times Jesus was tempted and three times he quoted scripture. Why? Because he can sympathize with us because that's what we have to do. Because we can't snap our finger and be someplace else. So he can sympathize. He was tested in his human nature as we are. There was nothing in his divine nature that would correspond to this, and I think that's the reference then that James is referring to. Let me put it on a very practical term. You could bring me after church. In fact, I had a guy last week say, could, could I bring you from my garden fresh okra? There was nothing in me that responded to that as a temptation. Now, if he said, I got a case of Snicker bars out in the car, would you like them? I I would correspond with that readily and say, absolutely. See, there's nothing in it, and that's the point of Christ. Now, it's interesting. Here, as he goes on, he says, God cannot be tempted by evil. That is, he's invincible to evil. There's nothing corresponding to his nature to evil. And he himself does not tempt anyone. You could render that God never solicits anyone to do what is morally wrong. God permits... The circumstances of temptation, but he never pushes or prompts anyone to sin. He has an intention in mind, and that would be your development. Satan has an intention in mind, and that's your destruction. But what we learn here is that God will never deliberately push you, prompt you to sin. That would be contrary to his stated goal to conform you to the image of his son who did not sin. So God doesn't prompt you to yield to temptation. In fact, Paul wrote to the Corinthians in chapter 10, verse 13 of the first letter that God will actually provide for you a way of what? Escape, if you want it. So God doesn't set the believer up with temptation. So we can't blame God. We can't even blame the devil when we choose to sin. Well, how does sin have such power and pull in our lives like under to? Why is it always wanting to pull us out to see? James would say, I'm glad you asked that because here's how sin works. James is going to unmask three ingredients as he analyzes the process of temptation and sin, as he exposes the truth of sin to us. The first ingredient is desire. Look at verse 14 carefully. He says, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. The word for lust can be rendered desire, strong desire towards something we know is forbidden. It can be a thought, an action, a deed, or whatever. Now what might be missed is the implication of the first part of this verse. It seems to me, to be absolutely revolutionary in understanding sin, and I want, you to, I want you to get this right. James writes, look back at the beginning. But each one is tempted. You could write into the margin your name because that's how individual, individualized he's writing. Each one is tempted. The original language literally means each person is uniquely tempted. You could better understand what James is saying if you amplify the whole verse to to, to read this way. Each person is individually and uniquely tempted when they are enticed by their own unique individual desires. That explodes the meaning. In fact, that tells us why temptation is so dangerous. it's, It's geared toward you individually. And you are unique, though we are all predisposed to sin. That is true. 
Because we're all fallen. We're all depraved. What that does mean is though we have the capacity to commit any sin, some of us are going to be predisposed toward one sin and some will be predisposed to another sin and some will be predisposed as it were to another sin. There will be something in your nature, your temperament, your personality that will resonate with whatever that temptation is. And for other people in here, why that thing could, could show itself every day and knock on your door and, and, and you wouldn't even think twice. That's what he's saying here. You say, Stephen, you sound like a Swedish researcher who says we're simply wired for certain behavior. Well, not entirely. I would agree that we're uniquely created as individuals. You could even call it, I think equally true, a genetic bent, a personality, a temperament that resonates with certain sin. But we cannot, and here's where I disagree, we cannot excuse our sinful behavior because of it. We can't say, oh, I got that gene. Or here's how I'm wired. Or I'm attracted to that. You see, we cannot say, that's the way I am. Just because Solomon was predisposed to loving women didn't mean he was anything less than sinful in his collection of wives. He couldn't say, well, you know, it's just the way I was. A person can be uniquely drawn to struggling with any number of things. The list can be long. It could be struggling uniquely with alcoholism where that first sip for you is going to be very, very dangerous. That's why I highly recommend nobody ever takes one sip. It could be gambling that resonates with your fallen, unique nature, or pornography, or adultery, or homosexuality, or gluttony, and on and on and on. Here's here's the difference. That doesn't change what God considers to be sinful behavior. His standard remains the same for everyone, no matter how they're wired. No matter what your personality is. No matter what that predisposition seems to want to act out. See, this is important to understand because of the way you will face temptation. The world, the flesh, the devil happen to know by experience who you are. And so the bait is constantly set uniquely for you. The fishermen, Satan, even though not specifically mentioned as baiting the hook, will show up in chapter 3 and chapter 4. He, he's learning what kind of bait to put on his hook for you. It's going to be different bait for me, different bait for others. That's the point here. One author put it this way. You're going to go home this afternoon and you're going to watch a football game maybe. You're going to turn one on perhaps. and You know what you're going to watch? You're going to watch men. Get out there who have carefully prepared for that game by studying their opponent's game film. They've spent hours looking for weaknesses and tendencies they can exploit. Players will will look at game film on the individual who will be on the opposite side of the line from them to try to find out their tendencies, to exploit their weaknesses, to take advantage of their flaws and their their failures. Let me tell you something this author writes. Satan has game film on you and on me. He has spent years, perhaps, studying it and his imps that follow along in order to bring about that which would discredit your reputation, your testimony, and inhibit your worship of the glory of God. They've got game film on you. And the older you get, the more film they have to watch, so to speak. He has learned your tendencies. He's aware of your weaknesses. And so he knows that if he can effectively, this author says, recreate that scene that led you into sin before there is a great chance you will fall for it again. And when you do, you can't blame him. You fell. He just sets it up. Here's how James says it happens. Look at verse 14 again. He's carried away and enticed by his own lust. His own lust. Now James uses words here that come right out of the hunting experience. 
carried away in the first century would immediately bring meaning to the person's mind reading this. It's a reference to to being lured by the scent of meat in a trap. The word enticed in your text, translated in mine, enticed, refers to bait on a line used by a fisherman. Now, don't overlook the fact that that though Satan, the world, is constantly baiting the hook, that we provide him with everything necessary because it happens to be our lusts, our desires. He just, he just baits the hook with the right environment or, or the right encounter or the right visual aid or, or the right taste or the right moment of discouragement or the right sense of longing or lacking. He uses that to add to the lure that's already there. He just simply increases the scent. He, he catches our eye with the movement of the bait on the hook that whispers, that resonates with the desire that we already carry around in our heart. And the idea, of course, is to hide the trap. Just expose the bait. The idea here is to to disguise the hook, to make it look like something other than an instrument of capture and destruction, right? No fish ever swims around in the lake looking for hooks. Hey, that one looks like a, a new one. That looks like a, it's stainless steel. I think I'll bite that one. No. They swim around looking for a meal. It's a legitimate need, perhaps. And the genius of Satan in the world and the flesh is to so disguise the, the hook to get you to believe that, that what you're getting is a free meal. That's all. And it's going to taste wonderful. You won't know if you're not alert that you're actually biting into death, destruction, harm. Before you know it, you're hooked, literally caught. You're caught in a trap. And the response that comes to mind would be to, to say, well, you know, it wasn't my fault. It was just a really good trap. We learn that young too, don't we? Like the little boy whose mother caught him eating the cookies she'd just baked and set out on the counter. She walked in as he was putting the second one in his mouth and she put her hands on her hips and she said, now didn't I tell you you couldn't eat any cookies until after dinner? And the boy responded, well, I just got up on the chair to smell the cookies and my teeth got caught. Had a mother of a four-year-old come up after the early service, him in tow. And she said, you know, you were telling that story, he listened, and then when you said his teeth got caught, he looked up at me and said, the same thing happened to me. (laughs) He thinks I'm on his level. I'm preaching on his behalf. Likes me now. Let's go to the second ingredient. The first is desire. The second is disobedience. Look at verse 15. Then when lust has conceived... It gives birth to sin. In other words, when the fish bites, when he acts upon, when he decides to move and capture the lure, when his will is set in motion so that he will now think, he will now plan, he will now fulfill his desire. James writes, it's at that moment when his will is engaged that it becomes sin. Now James will will change his illustration by taking us away from the hunting scene and, 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 and moving us into, as it were, a, a, a hospital delivery room. And what he does is he personifies these ingredients of sinning so that we can understand. Just follow me this way. Perhaps this will make a clear sense. Desire is attracted to and finally decides to run away with disobedience. Desire conceives, and they have a child, and the child's name is sin. 
See, when your will connects with your desire and you choose to disobey, that ends up giving birth to sin. You say, but it didn't look like sin. Of course it didn't. That's the whole genius of temptation. It looked like popularity. It looked like personal satisfaction. It looked like being finally able to be me. It looked like true love. It looked like a way to get out of debt. It looked like relief from pressure. It looked like the next move up the ladder. It looked like the logical next step. It looked like being appreciated. It looked like fun. It looked good. Of course it did. And you bit into the bait. And fantasy turned to reality. And James will warn us that there's even more trouble ahead. You see, you move from disobedience then into this third ingredient, which is death. Look again. When sin is accomplished, it brings forth the consequence. Death. Did you know that you get to choose your sin? But you cannot choose the consequences of sin. And James will indicate here that this sin is kept. It reaches maturation. It comes full term, so to speak, in this analogy. Uh, It's cherished. It's hidden. It's followed. And after a while, it brings one form of destruction after another. And here's something you need to consider. James isn't talking, I don't believe, about physical death here because sinners can live a very long time before they ultimately die. And this is present tense. James isn't talking about spiritual death because he's talking to Christians who sin. I believe he's talking about a death-like existence. This is the self-destruction of sin. This is, the, this is the harm of cherished sin that David spoke of when he wrote that he was literally, the psalmist writes, consumed by his unrepentant heart and life. He wrote in Psalm 32, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. The warning is intended to cover every form of disintegration. Despair, disease, depression, loss of relationships, all that is truly honorable. And maybe you learned early on what it meant to cheat on that test and hide it. What happened to your appetite? It left you. What happened, what happened to your mind and heart every time the telephone rang? See, I remember on one occasion, one of the few occasions I ever did this, but I, I forged my father's name on one of those slips they sent home from school, basically saying your, 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 your child is a barbarian. Okay, that, that, that's basically what it meant. And I had to get the parent to sign it. And so I knew I was really in trouble because my parents had a unique way of dealing with barbarians. And it wasn't pleasant. And so I signed Keith Davey. And I really messed it up. And so I dropped some water on it so it kind of smear the ink a little bit. I'm a genius at, 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 at this. And I brought it in and I handed it in and I knew. And so every time the phone rang, What do you think is happening to me? My body is wasting away. My vitality is gone like the summer fever. That's why. You don't really ever agree with that. In fact, it's dangerous if you don't really feel it anymore. Even though sin brings temporary relief or applause or friendship or, or pleasure, he says you've bitten and, and here's what's really going to happen. You're going to begin to destroy your life. You remember the old saying, sin will take you further than you wanted to go. It will cost you more than you wanted to pay. It will keep you longer than you wanted to stay. Now, we're not told that the temptation doesn't look like that. It looks good. But it's hiding a hook. 
And James has delivered the truth about trouble, and now he's not holding back as he delivers the truth about temptation. He says, don't play the blame game. I want you to notice, secondly, he says, take off the blinders. Look at verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Again, he's writing to Christians, which is a fascinating thought. As he he says here, don't be deceived. What that word means is to allow that which you lust after to blur your thinking so that you forget about the truth and you follow after the lie. And the closer you get to engaging your will, the further away from the truth you get into believing the lie. He's saying, wake up to the truth. This is an imperative. Again, another exclamation point from James. It's present tense. He's literally saying, stop being deceived. He's writing to Christians. Be aware. This is how temptation works. Stay alert. Don't be blindsided. Keep your eyes open. Don't bite. Swim for it. It's late September, which means for us the mice have returned. That 25-acre field which we love where the cattle graze, that's where the mice build their summer homes. And in the winter, they want to move in with us. And that's a problem. So this past Friday, I went to Lowe's and I bought all kinds of mouse stuff. You know why I bought them? Right, because I wouldn't get a cat. But besides that... (laughs) I bought them because I knew I'd be preaching from this text and I wanted an illustration. Now, that's, that's part of the truth. The real reason is my wife, a few days ago, showed me the bag of pancake mix that we'd used three days earlier. And now there were two ragged holes chewed into the bottom. Those mice want my pancakes. <laughs> this is serious. I went and bought not one, but I bought three ways to kill mice. Three different ways. Pouches of poison. They're in the garage now. A couple in the pan- one in the pantry, one in the laundry room. And, and then the traditional wooden mousetrap. And, and then I saw this, and I studied it for a while. This, this is a brand new mousetrap. It's, it's, it it's aerodynamic even. Isn't that good? <laughs> Zero to 50 in five seconds or less. But anyhow, you flip this little thing down here, and that's your bait. Trap, I've already got it loaded with, with peanut butter. I just took this out of my pantry and brought it today. So then you just snap that closed. And then what you do is, you notice it's white, blends in to the trim along the floor. They thought of everything. Then you just push that down, and it raises this steel bar right up here. And, and then the mouse comes along, and he, he sees peanut butter, and he walks in, and, and basically he, he, he goes to heaven. Okay, that's how it... <laughs> That's how it works, okay? <laughs> my, my mice are elect, if you're, if you're wondering, okay? Now, now, if I could bring all the mice into my living room, at one time we were thinking about moving in, and I could seat them around there, you know, serve them tea, make them comfortable, and get up and demonstrate what I've just purchased. This is a mouse trap, new. Improved. It says mouse caught. Right there in red. There's a little bait door I could show them. I could tell them what I put in it. Peanut butter. Something that they, you know, it resonates with their depraved nature. (laughs) And I can tell them how to work. And if you stick your head in there, eventually it'll... I could even use PowerPoint. And I thought about this. I could put some PowerPoint up for them, you know, that houses are for humans. Uh, pancakes are for people, alliteration, you know, to, to, to help. And then I tell them that, that the only solution they've got is to stay out in the cold where they're going to die, or they can come into my house where they're going to die. <laughs> You're dismissed. And, and they can, in terror, trembling, uh, leave. Well, how's that for heartless? Huh? End of discussion. And that's the way it's going to be. Fortunately, God doesn't talk to us about the trap the same way we would talk to mice. 
Well, the first part would be the same. He says, well, here's the trap. Here's what it's like. Here's how it's baited. Here's how it appeals to you. Here's the danger. The result is death. He goes on and on, and basically he can describe basically what we've just described. But then what God does, because we are not mice, is he can open the door and he can say, now listen, what I want you to do that will help you avoid this is I want you to think about two things. In fact, they're wonderful things. They will warm you. They will protect you. They will give you sanctuary. Here are the two things. He says, I want you to revel in two thoughts. Number one, I want you to revel in the goodness of me as your God and Father. Look at verse 17. Every good thing and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. You see, when you're in the grip of temptation, we forget about the promise of God. We have a need. And it really seems like a legitimate need. And it may be a legitimate need. You, you're, you're, you're tired. A legitimate need is sleep. But you can use it illegitimately and become lazy. We have a legitimate need to eat. We can use and treat that illegitimately and become a glutton and so on and so forth. But when we're tempted... Temptation says, look, meet that need in your own way. Step out on your own. Eat the fruit. You'll be better off. It's good for you. Why wait? It's everything you've wanted. God, in fact, is holding out on you. And every step closer, you're abandoning the truth that God is good. And he has promised to give us what we truly need in his good timing. And it's never a trap. It will not lead to death, but life. He says in verse 17, with whom is no variation or shifting shadow. James, we don't have time to explore this, but James is referring to the shadows caused by the turning of the lights he created. Those bodies in the sky. He is the creator, the father of the lights. But James is implying that those bodies of light create shadows. They're not consistent and you don't always have enough light. Sometimes it's dark and he says, with me, I am consistently good toward you. There is no variation in turning. I never turn, God says. That's what he means. In him there is no darkness at all, 1 John 1, 5. With him there is no variation. He will not be good for you one day and evil toward you the next. And, and James is actually confronting the pantheon of his day where the gods were as capricious and evil and immoral and, 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 and malicious and mischievous as human beings. He's saying, not the true and living God. He doesn't have a dark side. There's never even a shadow of turning. Revel in the goodness of God. Meditate and consider the goodness of God. Not only that, James says we should revel in the grace of God. Verse 18, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. So that we should be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. He's referring to our spiritual birth by the will of God. Through the word of truth, which is the gospel of God. And then he says you become a first fruit. That, that's a wonderful figure. It's drawn out of the Old Testament law, which designated the, for, the first portion of the harvest being offered as a unique possession unto God. And the rest of the harvest is used for ordinary purposes. He's saying, implying, you are not ordinary. You are a, a, a precious, priceless possession of God. You're more than a mouse or a fish. You belong to him. And so, effectively, James is saying, live up in the goodness of your life to the goodness of God, who in his grace redeemed you and you now belong to him. See, when we sin, we act unlike his children. When we pursue purity, we act like his children. We live up to who we are. 
He's effectively saying, stop chasing worms on baited hooks. Stop following your nose with the scent of every lure. You belong to the creator, redeemer, who offers goodness and mercy and life. So revel in these things. Revel in the goodness of God and the grace of God. Group of children were brought in just sort of as an experiment, and they had placed on the table candy of all different kinds. And the children were told, Now, don't eat that until your teacher comes back into the room. And the teacher left. And they had a camera, and they were watching the responses of the children classic responses. Some children immediately got involved in something else, and they just wouldn't look. Uh, one, one girl just sat there in front of it and just rocked back and forth looking at that. But I loved one little boy who went and he stood in a corner with his back to it and he began to sing. He just sang and sang and sang. I think that's the idea here. You respond to it with the positives of the glory and goodness of God. And his wonderful grace. So when facing trials, be passionate about persevering. When facing temptation, be passionate about purity. Because at the end of the day, our gracious, redeeming God deserves nothing less than our all. Amen? Let's sing. Oh.